0: Good evening, Um, thank you very much for turning out tonight. We should really be discussing The Winter's Tale, but in fact, Mm. we're gonna discuss another play um, by Shakespeare. And we have to establish, first of all, what to call it. Trigger warnings are very important in the academic world, as Professor James Shapiro knows. Um, So, there is a convention in the theatre that you don't mention a particular play, but unfortunately, it's the one that you're here to talk about for 45 minutes. Uh, We, in this country, at a time when this country was being run by um, a brooding Scot who had craved power for years, then got it and found that it didn't suit him. Um, we used to call it the Gordon Brown show, uh, play, <laughs> but nobody remembers him now, so we might just have to say. It. But the good news is, um, if anyone is an actor, or an incredibly superstitious actor, or just incredibly superstitious, you may have to leave, As I think we're probably going to say it, but the really good news is that in James Shapiro's 1606 Shakespeare and the Year of Lear, again, you're not here for the wrong play, um, Macbeth, I said it, was written around the same time. Um, so we'll be talking about that, but uh, you explain in this book, um, the curse. The is origin of the curse. The origin of the curse, but it's um it's barely as old as some theaters across it's the river.
1: 1895. Max Beerbaum, hmm. bored with reviewing productions he wasn't keen on, and he decided to make up, in faux Elizabethan language, a story about a young actor who uh, was injured in the course of playing in Macbeth. And it snowballed, uh, to use an apt uh, image for today. <laughs> and if you think about it, it's about as bloody a play setting aside Titus Andronicus as there is in the canon. And there are some terrific fights right up to the end when actors are tired. And you know, these are daggers that I see. There's a lot of dagger transferring. There's all kinds of violence. And sooner or later, you're gonna get hurt in this production. uh, Or somebody's gonna remember a friend or a neighbor or a rival who played in this and got injured. And over the course of the last 130 years, actors love superstitious uh, uh, things and this play has somehow been a magnet for it. But I should say, it's this play and no other because the question of the supernatural hovers over this play as much as violence does.
0: Well, we um, we were told at school, probably uh, uh, many people in this theatre were as well, that um, the superstition came from the fact that people believed that real, um, that the um, the black mass and real witchcraft was in the play. But that's another, is that a myth?
1: There's some great myths about mm. dark spirits, supernatural. There's the famous Dr. Faust's production where the actors counted the number of devils on stage, and realized the company only had 11 actors and there were 12 on stage. And instead of going out and drinking and carousing, as actors do, they, they went and said their prayers that night. Uh, but this play from the beginning, from the Weird Sisters, or witches as we tend to call them, uh, has this uh, supernatural and uncomfortable force and some productions run from that and, and naturalize it in a way. Others beginning, really, in the early 17th century, when Shakespeare's collaborator uh, around that time, Middleton, got to the play sometime after it was first stage and added Hecate and added quite a bit of the uh, supernatural stuff that occurs towards the end of the play, that it tilted even more towards that spectrum. I I think Shakespeare's plays, Lear, Macbeth, Hamlet, as plays that can either tilt towards domestic tragedy or towards some political story and partly supernatural story and directors really have to choose. I've not seen, who's going to see the play tonight? We all are. I've not seen it yet. So I'm not giving anything away in saying, I'm always interested in which way the play's going to to tilt, and I won't know it until Act 1, Scene 7.
0: And if um, you, some of you are going to see the play tonight, um, I'm seeing it next week, but there's also, uh, you probably know, there's a Royal Shakespeare Company production of it coming up soon. I do. There's a movie version coming out soon, which is the third movie version in three years. Um, jo Nesbo, the Norwegian novelist, he has written um, a novelized version of Macbeth for that Hogarth series. Um, you got these Which is terrific, by yeah. the way, I have yeah. just,
1: uh, just reviewed it for the New York mm-hmm. Times, it's not out yet. Uh, I'm not a Nesbo fan, as apparently 30 million people yeah. around the globe are, <laughs> and it is really hard to turn Shakespeare into fiction, in part because mostly what he did was turn fiction into Shakespeare, and reverse engineering that is a challenge. Joe Nesbo chose the right play, mm-hmm. and even though he's writing, in a language that has to be translated into English, Norwegian, oh. uh, it really is an exciting novel.
0: I agree. I mean, I've also uh, lucky enough to read an early version. But you get these little uh, clumps of Shakespearean productions, um, Measure for Measure, a few years ago. But why? <coughs> it's an obvious question. But why, why so many now at the moment, Macbeth? There's,
1: this year is going to be Macbeth and Othello. Mm. Um, the public theatre is doing Othello following Julius Caesar last summer. Julius Caesar just had a a brief run and is still having a run over here. Macbeth is now having a run. One of the things that I spend too many waking hours trying to figure out is how to connect a 400-year-old play that has its own uh, set of anxieties, pressures, the kind of thing that drew Jacobean audiences to the Playhouse, 400 years later, drawing us to the Playhouse. And when I say us, uh, I used to think in a kind of Anglo-American way. I no longer do. I think different things draw American audiences and British audiences. So you're having a run of Macbeths here, but we're not having a run of Macbeths in the States. And where the Globe Theater is doing Othello this summer with Mark Rylance, mm. and the, the Public Theater is doing Othello, and Argonne is has just done an Othello. We're, we're not. So one of the things that I'm interested in really is, to be honest, Brexit and Macbeth. Mm. And uh, no, no, I mean, mm. I, I'm, I know there's been a Brexit and a snowstorm or Brexit and everything imaginable, but you who live here are experiencing a fundamental change in the political order. And you, you're going through it in a way, to my American eyes, in slow motion. And that is, it's, we were warned three times not to forget there's one more stare coming through that door. Mm. And the image of my, either of us pitching <laughs> towards the uh, stage, th- that's my image of Brexit right now. <laughs> and, there's one other element that I think explains it, which is the political language and the degradation of political language and the ways in which equivocation has become a 21st century phenomenon, both in Trump's America and in contemporary Britain. So I'm really trying when I see the play tonight, when I uh, see the RSC uh, production uh, this summer, uh, try to understand what that production reveals to me about contemporary Britain. I I know contemporary Mm. Shakespeare's Britain pretty Mm. well, and I've immersed myself in that, but I'm always struggling. I open up the newspapers like everyone else or go online and read them and I get the news from them, but then I have to go to see a Shakespeare Mm. production to really explain to me what that news means. Mm. So uh, I'm here tonight after this uh, conversation to try to understand Brexit Britain a little bit better through this production.
0: But the other thing that struck me um, is that although there's no suggestion that Theresa May or um, uh, France, um, uh, Macron, Emmanuel Macron or um, Donald Trump um, actually murdered their predecessors, we, ha- we have a lot of unexpected leaders at the moment or people for whom the prospect of power uh, is more attractive than the reality of it. And that must, to me, be one of the reasons that...
1: That that has to be, and that's very astute. This is a play, not to ruin uh, the plot of Macbeth for anybody who (laughs) missed, was homeschooled, let's just say, uh, and and hadn't been taught it along the way, but uh, the desire for power is overwhelming in this play. And the exercise of it is profoundly disappointing. Mm -hmm. And um, again, from an American perspective, nothing pleased Donald Trump more than beating Hillary Clinton. And nothing displeases him every day now than having to exercise power in a highly constrained way for three more years. Mm -hmm. So Shakespeare had an incredible interest in power and he had, unusual access to it. Under Queen Elizabeth, he's going to perform at court with his company, the Chamberlain's men, two, three times a year, in a good year. And under James, he and his company are elevated to King's men, and all of a sudden, they're called in a dozen times a year. So he's watching, the King watching a play, uh, many once a month, essentially, and he's trying to understand what those in power are like. And he's writing about them, but he's also observing them. So I think he's in an unusual position, much like journalists say today are, who are watching those in power uh, struggle with that power.
0: What we're gonna talk about um, mainly is um, 1606, uh, Shakespeare in the Year uh, of Lear, um, a period in which Shakespeare also wrote Antony and Cleopatra and. Macbeth. Um, James Shapiro is sparing his brushes, but he actually changed my life because I'd been brought up as a um, literary critic and as a student of English literature because I mainly did uh, contemporary literature and drama. And the way we were taught was um, look at who the Prime Minister was, who the President was, what was going on in the uh, world at the time why did this play get written then and yeah it was a co- common approach and I used to feel deep regret that we didn't have anything um, like that for the plays of Shakespeare. It was so hard to find out anyway then along came um, Professor James Shapiro and he wrote 1599 um, which was about that uh, pivotal year in the Uh, History of England, but also Shakespeare and then 1606. So in the book, uh, and he'll be signing copies afterwards, and I do uh, greatly recommend 1599, 1606, uh, which is a sort of sequel, as it were. Um, But then also, as with Shakespeare, these are quite tragic books, but there's also a comedy one as well, which is Contested Will. (coughs) Excuse me. If anyone in the audience um, thinks they're seeing a play by someone other than Shakespeare, tonight, then read Contested Will, and we put out of your uh, delusion. Um, it's a, um, a book, I just say in parenthesis, but I strongly recommend it, about all the um, astonishing claims that have been made for the plays of William Shakespeare being written by someone other than William Shakespeare.
1: And if you actually believe that Marlowe or Oxford or any of the 75 or 80, probably 81 by the time we leave, (coughs) uh, candidates for the play wrote them, you're not gonna have your mind changed by my book. But you will learn Mm. what the book is really about is, what does it mean to live in an age where conspiracy thinking and fake news take over? Very topical. And that's what Mm. that book was really about. And I used the Shakespeare uh, authorship controversy to wrestle with what I was watching (coughs) and spying on really, which is uh, the move towards, and it really helped me with 1606 and equivocation. What happens when the things that we depend upon language, news, uh, government reports, uh, break down Mm. and there is nothing that we can agree to agree upon So that's essentially at the heart of contested will, but then it Mm. ended up being at the heart of uh, 1606 as well.
0: So what um, James Shapiro does, and I've picked out a few examples, but there are many more in the book, um, uh, looking at the historical events that um, lie behind uh, Macbeth and the other plays written at the time in a way perhaps we didn't understand, (coughs) and also particularly other um, literary uh, texts, It also struck me that the ability to word search has um, transformed Shakespeare scholarship. There are these apparently casual references in your text, apparently casual, where you say, um, before Macbeth, the word equivocation had only occurred once in Shakespeare's plays. Um, Macbeth is the play in which the word tyranny occurs or tyrant occurs 15 times. Um, your predecessors, that would have taken them 400 years in the Bodleian Library, wouldn't it, going through every, every uh, text?
1: I can tell you that 1599 <laughs> took me 15 years to research and write, and, and uh, 1606 took 10, mm-hmm. so it shaved five years of tedious library research, and the kind of access to that sort of information now through databases is astounding. Mm. I mean, in my pajamas at home, I can go through every text that uses the word equivocation Mm. that might have taken me six months at the B, you know, at the BL mm. being awfully nice to the staff that brings the books <laughs> up.
0: And we mentioned the word equivocation a few times, so we will stop equivocating about why. There is a whole astonishing chapter in 1606 about the word equivocation, which, as I've said, we had, had only occurred once in Shakespeare before then. Now, this is also related to um, one of the historical events, which is gunpowder plot, and the fear and suspicion of Catholics. Um, but the t- one of the texts that lies behind it is a treatise on equivocation.
1: It's a beautiful book. It's up at the Bodleian, and um, it's a manuscript, really. It's not a book. And it was written by a man named Henry Garnett, who had been sent in the 1580s as a youngish man on essentially a suicide mission back to his native England from Rome uh, with... Uh, a companion and uh, uh, subtle and uh, who was caught and tortured and executed. And this book was written in a way as a defense. Catholics were being persecuted and uh, there was a need to instruct Catholics on how to, I'll call it lie, but let's just say misrepresent things under oath when the authorities Came and were investigating. So let's say you were hiding a priest in your house, and the authorities burst in, and they'd say, uh, "Is uh, is Father Gerard in your house?" And you would say, "He doesn't lie in my house," and that would mean that he's wasn't in the cowshed, telling falsehoods in mm-hmm. your house. So you haven't uh-huh. actually told a lie, <laughs> or right? He could be in the cowshed. There were other. And it's an instruction manual, it's great. Um, ah. you could say he went that away, pointing with your finger behind your back in <laughs> the opposite direction. And those were really with the authorities disturbing. But there was one kind of equivocation which to to the minds of those in power, judges, um, privy counselors, was just terrifying, and that's what they called mental reservation. So if you asked me, um, have I seen Father Gerard? Um, I would say no, although I was thinking, even though he's in the room above us. Now God knows my thoughts, even if they're unexpressed, but you don't. So the idea that unexpressed thoughts could not constitute lying, ruins testimony under oath, it just does. So. This uh, handbook on equivocation uh, turned out to be exhibit A when the authorities rounded up the gunpowder plotters and the government's narrative of this shifted from um, a mad Guy Fox, and 20 uh, uh, unhappy uh, young Catholic uh, men who were responsible for this plot to something masterminded by the Jesuit handlers. And equivocation became the buzzword of the year. So it went in 1599, 1600 in Hamlet to meaning something ambiguous to something pernicious and dangerous by 1606. And using those tools to allow us, the engram on Google search, you can just see the spike in this word, at this time, in sermons, in public declarations, in court testimony, in trials, and, and in, in Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare, absolutely. So
0: when, you, when you're watching, there are young people here, so don't do it as a drinking game. But every time you hear the word equivocation in Macbeth tonight, then just have a sort of um, spiritual drink or a virtual one. But there'll be several, won't there? I mean, huge numbers. It, it's
1: central to the play. And, and Sometimes I feel like that chapter was three times as long when I submitted it to my publishers (laughs) at Faber, and they made me trim it. And I think that some of the explanatory power is gone. The problem with equivocation is that it degrades language, not just for those who lie, but for those who also tell the truth. And if you pay close attention to the play, you'll discover that some of the most extraordinary and uh, heroic characters in the play, Lady Macduff and her innocent son, equivocate. Once you live in a, a world in which language is debased, as the world of Macbeth is, and it begins with, so Foul and Faraday, I have not seen. Hmm. Once the witches put in the mind of Macbeth, no, you will not be... Uh, killed by, you know, the, uh, uh, a man or woman born. born and the like. Once those equivocal statements set the baseline for the action of the play, language breaks down and it breaks down for the good characters, the Macduffs as much as it does, and the Malcolms as much as it does for Lady M and Macbeth himself.
0: And one of the other things you share is the texts that lie um, behind Macbeth and Shakespeare's other plays. And um, there's a headline in a British newspaper just about a week ago, which was Shakespeare was a plagiarist official, which was based on some. Now, it depends clearly, yes, absolutely what you mean by the word plagiarism. But um, one of the other fascinating things in 1606 is that uh, Professor Shapiro shows us that um, in the way that, again, we've written a lot about contemporary playwrights who do this, that um, he... Draws on or recycles bits of Henry the Six, Part two, um, and also that uh, part of his research from um, Antony and Cleopatra turns up in this
1: and from Lear as well, yeah, yeah. The, uh, I might as well get it out mm. of my system. Mm. The story many of you may have read about Shakespeare as plagiarist mm. using plagiarism uh, uh, software mm. uh, and the man who made that claim one of the two had produced and published three years ago a book saying that uh, Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare, was in fact North, and this is a kind of (coughs) watered-down version of that argument. The problem with the argument for Shakespeare's plagiarist uh, is this. Bad writers plagiarize, and bad students plagiarize. Great students steal, and great, great (laughs) writers, and Shakespeare was one of the greatest, steal. He steals a lot in Macbeth. And if you're going to persuade me that Shakespeare was a plagiarist, you're really persuading me that he was a mediocre writer. Mm. And you'll have to work very, very hard to do that because that's not the way he devoured his sources. And the claim made in that uh, Mm. newspaper story was that Shakespeare kept one book Mm. at his elbow for 15 years. Shakespeare did not keep any single story at his elbow. He just ransacked it and then found more books to ransack. And uh, one of the fun things, since we don't know who Shakespeare was sleeping with, uh, uh, what his religious beliefs were and the like in this year, we can follow what he was reading simply because he was stealing so nakedly from (laughs) these writers.
0: Another of the fascinating things was to say the, the approach of Professor Shapiro is why, in the way that we um, more recently have just done with contemporary writers, why did they approach it in this way? There's a really fascinating one, which is that, again, there's a plot spoiler, I'm sorry, um, but uh, two Scottish kings die in Macbeth. But the interesting thing, which I never thought about until I read your book, is that they both die um, off stage. Which
1: audiences hate? I mean, if you think about it, could you imagine? The death of Claudius offstage. The death of Cleopatra offstage. Julius
0: Caesar, if they came in and said we just stabbed him we and they, um, it, yeah. It
1: was terrible, you wouldn't mm. want to see what mm. just happened. Uh, the play Duncan is killed offstage in everything but filmed mm. versions mm. of it. Mm. And of course Macbeth is killed offstage at the end. And there's a pragmatic reason for that you have a Scottish king on the throne. And one of the things you do not want to stage is (laughs) the murder of a Scottish king. And in fact, there had been, one of the things that I didn't know, uh, since I began by reading histories of the period, contemporary historians leave out rumors and fake news. That is to say, modern historians. But if you are reading what somebody is writing about 1606, in 1606, all those false reports bubble up. And there's a wonderful description of King James going out riding, which he did every day because he hated running government even more than my president does. And <laughs> he would go off with a bunch of young men hunting. And for some reason, uh, a criminal rode by a town where he was riding by, and everyone took up the shout and cry, the king has been killed. And it made it 20 miles back to London. London was in a panic. They. Wheeled out the, the cannons at the tower and closed up Parliament. And of course, James rode back, and his subjects were so happy to see him alive. He felt it was better than they had won a battle for him. So you're feeling in these false reports what people might have felt in watching a play like Macbeth, because this was. An extraordinarily anxious time in England. I, I was I was in Lisbon last week, and saw a painting of Lisbon in 1755, when after a series of earthquakes, the city crumbled. That is what would have happened to London had the Gunpowder Plot mm-hmm. succeeded, and this is the first place Shakespeare writes after the 5th of November 1605, and you get a sense of how terrifying the destruction of a nation would be just saturates the play and explains in part why it is so dark and supernatural and troubling a work.
0: Although again, you make to me a fascinating point about that I hadn't thought about, that you're, the, you're in the first generation of academics to write about the gunpowder plot after 9-11, after 7-7 here. But if you point out in the book, the extraordinary thing about it, when you think about it, is that it's um, It's the only famous terrorist atrocity that didn't happen.
1: And that's the challenge, because you have to make people imagine. And it was actually against the law in 1606 to imagine the death of a king. And that made it really hard for Shakespeare and his audiences, (laughs) since that's really what he's doing time and again in the theatre and preachers from that November on, right up through this spring, when the gunpowder plotters are captured, tortured, and publicly executed, uh, right from January until May, early May of this year. You're told again and again what might have happened, what would have happened, the catastrophe that would have followed the death of the royal family, the political and religious elite, the rolling back of the Protestant Reformation, the death of, James predicted himself, 30,000 Londoners from the fires and destruction that would have followed. I grew up in uh, New York City, and I lived through 9-11. And I felt that having lived through that genuine terrorist attack um, enabled me to have a purchase on the fear that Londoners and uh, uh, English and British people were experiencing in, the, in this year. So that helped me. Mm. I think had I written 1606 before 1599, mm. it would have been mm. uh, a much weaker effort.
0: The other thing, it'd be interesting to see what they do um, with it here, but it's a very hard play for lighting designers to win awards because when you read it, it's quite astonishing. There's actually a reference to the sun not having come up that day, most of it takes place at night or in a day where the sun hasn't risen. Uh, we talk about it being um, dark, dark in theme, but it is literally dark as a play, is you know, it? fu-
1: <coughs> I, I, I haven't thought about it in those ways, but Shakespeare, even though he's writing uh, plays like Macbeth or Romeo mm. and Juliet for an outdoor stage, uh, the Globe or before that the Curtain mm. or, or the Theatre, f- to be performed in daylight from mm. 2 to 5 in the afternoon he's very conscious in constructing plays, whether parts of those plays take place at night or in the day. Mm. Romeo and Juliet are only together in the dark in every scene in which they meet in that play. And there's a kind of mm. darkness to every meeting of uh, the Macbeths in this mm. play as well. I, I, I think that he's extremely conscious of, of that. Uh, there are no bright spots in, in this play. Mm. It's really hard to know. You you saw Five King Mm, Lears last year. (laughs) It's hard to know which is uh, a darker or more Mm. grim play. I think that it really depends on, uh, nowadays, on the director. But from the text itself, this is as as dark as Shakespeare gets.
0: The one we haven't touched on is that which, something which is astonishingly, as recently as Hillary Clinton's bid for presidency, the... Lady Macbeth thing, that extraordinary stereotype and the resonance of that, to which it... Um, so we have to say something about that. It is extraordinary that, that um, it still it means something, and it can damage you if it's used about you.
1: I think that's true. I think that every Macbeth I see from post-Harvey Weinstein time on is also going to be, in part, a Me Too Macbeth and it's gonna make it an even more challenging role for any actor playing Lady Macbeth. Uh, But I think we're grappling with the problem of a powerful woman. Um, This moves away from my book, but centers on that question. One of the things that I do for fun is train executives who have no interest in Shakespeare. I, I get them for a full day, they're from around the world, And we get a theater, and I get some professional actors to work with me. And the play we work on in the afternoon is um, Macbeth. And I have Macbeth and Lady Macbeth with one couple, and then with another couple. And the Lady Macbeth with the one couple is, uh, let's just say, using. 1950s styles technique to get what she needs. She's seductive, she's pliant, she strokes the ego of Macbeth. And the other lady, Macbeth, is defiant, assertive, and, if you will, emasculating, because the text supports that. The text supports either reading. And watching executives from Saudi Arabia or Indonesia, or from uh, the military as well, come in, generals come into this course as well through the the Business School at Columbia, grapple with the implications of a powerful woman challenging a powerful man is thrilling for me. And it's always thrilling in production. Thank you, Mark, for thank coming you. out and you, doing You'll also this.
0: find out whether, we haven't discussed the dodgy bits of Macbeth, but um, you'll find out whether they've been left in tonight. Um, so Professor James Shapiro and I will be signing um, 1606 Shakespeare in the year of Lear Lea in the main bookshop. Uh, thank you very much to all of you and to him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you,
1: thank you all.